0: The first reading um, today is um, from Genesis chapter two and starting at verse 18. So in the Bible's on your chairs, that should be on page three. Genesis chapter two, and we're gonna be reading verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone
1: The second reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9, and that is on page 1149 of the Church Bible. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your body is a members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, So glorify God in your body.
2: Amelia, thanks very much for reading for us. Morning, everyone. Lovely to uh, have you with us. Please, will you um, turn back to our first reading, which we had. We'll be coming back to 1 Corinthians, but turn back to that first reading we had from Genesis chapter 2. And then let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Psalm nineteen The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is simple, making is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful privilege we have this morning of gathering together to hear your voice as we look at the Bible. We pray you would indeed revive our souls, make us wise, rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our eyes. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Could we possibly turn the PA system down a bit? I'm just conscious of this constant feedback, so I can't quite see who's got the... um Um, Benji, brilliant. Oh, oh, Warren, great. Okay, thank you very much. If you can't hear me, stick a hand up, and I will uh, try and speak more loudly. Now, look, you'll know if you were here last week that this this today is the second of three talks on how we should respond to the Church of England's general synod votes in February to bless same-sex relationships, including the blessing of same-sex marriage. Last week we saw that we can be clear on the Bible, confident that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, God speaking to us, with the clear implication that we mustn't allow the the drift of our culture to trump what God says. If you've missed last week's talk, if you weren't here, then I'd love you to listen to it online, just so you then get uh, the context for what we're thinking about this morning which is marriage, what it is, and therefore how we should think, not so much, well, as well as marriage, but also how we should think about same-sex relationships. Let me just say, we're not going to see this morning everything the Bible says about marriage. There's a much fuller four-part sermon series on the website, I think, from a couple of years ago, so if you want the, the kind of fuller version, then do listen to that. But as we start, let me say that I'm very conscious that for some of us, this series of talks, including the one next week, is a series which is hard to hear. But I hope at least we are agreed that we do want to hear the truth, however difficult it is for us to hear that truth. I mean, you know, just think, if your car needs an MOT, do you take your car to the garage which is actually going to tell you what's wrong with it? Or do you take your car to the garage where they they promise they'll always pass every car regardless of its state of health? Or just think of when you go and see a doctor. Do you want your doctor to tell you the truth and what is wrong with you? Or actually do you want a doctor to tell you that, uh, you know, you're in the best shape ever? and there's nothing wrong with you whatsoever? Or for some of you applying to universities or thinking about universities, do you want to apply to a university that prides itself on not causing any offense and only teaching what you want to hear? Or will you apply to a university which will actually challenge you by teaching you the truth? You see, God loves us too much not to speak the truth to us, which means, of course, we can approach his word this morning with real confidence, even as our culture is thoroughly confused. And if you have sight of the outline, it's obviously going to come up on the screen uh, as we go through, but uh, we're going to look at two key things this morning, firstly what God says about marriage, Genesis 2, secondly what God says about homosexuality. So let's start with what God says about marriage. Genesis chapter 2, the whole chapter really is a chapter that gives us God's template for life in his good world. So back to chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Lord God made the heaven, the earth, and the heavens. And the rest of the chapter outlines God's good pattern his template including marriage and we see the first wedding in verses 23, 24 and 25. Now of course every wedding is a a cause isn't it for great celebration. Every wedding is like that. But the first wedding particularly so because it's the blueprint for every other wedding every other marriage that then follows. Uh, It really is a marriage made in heaven. Adam the man then bursts into song. Verse 23 As he sings, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then look on to verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, that is a hugely significant verse in the Bible because this is the template verse. This is God's original blueprint, so to speak for marriage his blueprint design and although you and i don't live in the garden of eden far from it we live in a world that has turned its back on god nonetheless the original blueprint design hasn't changed and jesus himself makes that point clear so before we go any further in genesis just turn will you to matthew chapter 19 which we looked at last week on page, I think it's on page 993, but I'm conscious the, the Bible version is slightly different in terms of pages. Page 993, certainly in this one, Matthew chapter 19. As I said, it's the passage we looked at last week. In verse 3, the Lord Jesus has asked a question about divorce. The Pharisees came up to him. And tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And in answer to that question, the Lord Jesus goes back to Genesis chapter 2, to the original marriage template. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It shows, you see, the way in which the Lord Jesus regarded Genesis 2 as authoritative in the ethical debates of his day. Notice how he endorses marriage as being from creation, from the very beginning, between a man and a woman. I think the striking thing is that here in Matthew chapter 19, you know, we're, we're 2,000 years beyond Genesis. And yet Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, Genesis 2, it's, it's a long time ago, it's out of date, we need to kind of redefine it for the modern age, or anything like that. And of course, if this is how Jesus who is God on earth regards Genesis 2 as the template for marriage, then it should come of no surprise to us at all that actually the rest of the New Testament does the same, as we should also regard it as the blueprint for marriage. In the same way, I guess, that in the United States, they have a constitution. The constitution came into the law in 1779, and appeals can be made to it despite the fact that the US Constitution is 250 years old, almost. And so you'll remember when Donald Trump challenged the outcome of the last US election in 2019, it was the Constitution which everyone was turning to to see what you do, because it's the blueprint for how the country functions. Well, similarly, Genesis chapter 2 Verse 24 does the same thing for marriage. So let's turn back to that verse, Genesis 2:24. It gives us four elements of marriage. I put all four of them on the outline, although really we're just going to focus on the fourth. Genesis 2:24, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and to hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." marriage is one public it is two permanent it is three physical in other words it's the only safe place for sexual intimacy and it is four heterosexual a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife marriage is between a man and a woman not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Marriage can only ever be between two people who are of the opposite sex because this is the way in which God created it. Now the reason for that is back in verse 18. Then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Here if you like is God's Person specification of what a helper for Adam should look like. Notice that little phrase, it must be a helper fit for the man. Or a more literal translation, someone who is like opposite. That's what that word, that phrase of fit for means, someone who is like opposite. It means of course that none of the animals are suitable, because they are not like. They are not like the man. They're not made in God's image in the way in which he is. And another man isn't suitable because while another man would be made in God's image, nonetheless, he wouldn't be opposite. Marriage is heterosexual. And therefore, God's good design as our loving creator is for sexual intimacy to be only within a lifelong marriage between one man and and one woman. It means that same-sex unions, because they don't have this inbuilt sense of being like opposites, this complementarity, are not part of God's good creation blueprint. And in God's sight, they can never be marriage. That's why, of course, the rest of the Bible sees homosexual activity as sinful Just as it sees heterosexual sexual intimacy that's outside of marriage as sinful as well. Now, to say that is not to be homophobic. Phobia, of course, is a fear. You know, arachnophobia is the fear of spiders and so on. Phobias so often are irrational, so it's a kind of clever use of of language. As Christians, we need to, and I hope we do, graciously insist that we are not homophobic. We don't fear homosexuality. We don't fear the gay community. Quite the opposite. We're called to love people. We're called to love all people. But we equally need to insist that homosexual practice is wrong and that same-sex marriage is not marriage So that's our first thing for this morning, what God says about marriage. Let's turn on to that second reading which we had from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and what God says, therefore, about homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page, again, in my version, it's page 1149. I wanted to notice two things here, they're both up on the, the screen. Firstly, that homosexuality is no different from other sins, or perhaps I sh- it should read, is in many ways no different. I think there might be uh, some ways, I think you could probably say it is different, but for our purposes this morning, it is no different from other sins. Now you may know that first century Corinth was a city in many respects, like London is today, known for its sexual permissiveness, Uh, Throughout the letter, we see the church struggling to be distinctive. The church in Corinth is very much a church which is struggling to swim against the cultural tide, just as the church does in the UK today. In chapters 5 to 6, it's in relation to sexual immorality. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that phrase, the kingdom of God, simply means the rule of Jesus. There is no place for the lifestyles of verses 9 and 10 if you are living under the rule of King Jesus. There must be a repentance, a genuine turning away from these things, as part of turning to Jesus and putting our trust in Him. But notice will you, that the Apostle Paul doesn't kind of get hung up on either sex or on homosexuality. There's a whole list of other lifestyle behaviours as well. Hence the heading: homosexuality is no different from other sins. And yet, it is still a sin. So notice, will you, Paul mentions sexual immorality, which in the Bible always refers to sexual um, intimacy outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Paul mentions idolatry, which is where we give a created thing or another person the position in our lives that God alone should have. It might be, uh, it might be career, it might be uh, possessions, it might be a relationship. He talks about adultery, which refers to those who engage in sexual immorality with another person when one of them is married. Homosexuality, but notice there Paul is talking about those who practice homosexuality. He's not talking about those who are same-sex attracted but don't practice it. It's those who practice it. Finally, in verse 10, he talks about this whole uh, a number of things, people's lives are characterized by, by theft, greed, drunkenness, reviling, in other words, slander, and swindling. Now, my assumption is this morning, with gatherings such as us here today, that actually all of us are going to struggle in one area or another with a list like this. Notice, will you, they are all actions. They are all behaviours. They are all lifestyles. As I said, Paul is talking about homosexual practice, not same-sex attraction. These verses are are not about those who, who fall into sin and are then repentant. They are those, instead about those whose lives are characterized by these things. It's part of their lifestyle. They are unrepentant. In other words, we mustn't think that homosexuality is the only sin that Christians are bothered about because theft and drunkenness and slander and defrauding others, many of course uh, which are are trivialised in our culture, are equally sinful. Nonetheless, homosexuality is on this list. It is wrong. A practising gay lifestyle is not an option for someone who is following Jesus. It's why, of course, it's so serious that the House of Bishops have chosen to mislead Christians in the Church of England into thinking that such relationships can be blessed. They can't. Did you notice the application of verse 9? Do not be deceived. I'm conscious that many of us have gay friends I'm conscious that some of us have gay family members and it is out of love that we say to them that this is what God says in the Bible. Don't be deceived. In contrast, it is unloving. Indeed, it is a wicked thing when church leaders give their blessing to same-sex relationships, thereby shutting those people out of God's kingdom. That must be a wicked thing to do that. So homosexuality is no different from other sins. But then I also want us to notice that same-sex attracted Christians are no different from other Christians. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There was an There was an article in one of the tabloid newspapers a couple of years ago. You may remember it. It's such a striking headline. The headline ran like this. Reverend welcomes murderers, pimps, and prostitutes to services to grow the flock. Well, a headline clearly designed to grab our attention, and it certainly worked with me. But what does Paul make of that? Well, he says to the church in Corinth, that is what some of you were but your lives are no longer characterized by those lifestyles. I wonder if you notice the three words in verse 11, and they are glorious words, which describes everyone, everyone, who has put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you spot them? Washed. Through the death of Jesus, our sin washed away, such that we are clean in God's sight. Sanctified. Through the death of Jesus, we're made holy in God's sight. We're set apart to serve him as his special, treasured people. Justified through the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Again, we are put right with God. We are made perfect in God's sight, both now in this life, but also on the final judgment day as well. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Three words, and yet conveying so much. It follows, therefore, that if you're same-sex attracted, and if you turn to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, you are no less loved by God than any other Christian. Let me say, my assumption has always been that there are same-sex attracted people here at Grace Church, either at single or married If you have repented, if you have put your trust in Jesus, you are in no way a sort of second-class Christian. And you could say exactly the same thing about the alcoholic, the thief, the adulterer, any of the other things here in Paul's list for those who have repented and put their trust in Jesus. You see, what is the, the gospel, if you like, for the person who is same-sex attracted. But it's exactly the same as it is for anyone else. It is a gospel of both repentance and of faith. Repentance, turning from your old way of life, turning from your old lifestyle, and faith, putting your trust in the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, following him as Lord now, tragically, the decision of the Church of England's General Synod to bless same-sex relationships, tragically, it actually amounts to a different gospel because it is a gospel without repentance. Can we see? Belief and repentance go together. Last week, I was reading a blog by a same-sex attracted Christian. Um, I was so taken with what she was saying, that I thought I'd uh, share some of her blog with you. The title of the article was Seven Things I Wish My Pastor Knew About My Homosexuality. And one of them was this. She said this, I wish you knew that it honors neither God nor me to apologize for God's plan or design. She said, I appreciate empathy for the pain that my misdirected longings may cause. But God is not arbitrarily withholding something good from me. He is showing me what leads to life and human flourishing and is keeping me from that which will harm me, love me and tell me the truth. Isn't that such a powerful thing to hear from someone who is same-sex attracted? She went on to say that she wants to be treated like every other follower of Jesus. She said this, I wish you knew that I should be credited with the same moral agency and responsibility as everyone else in the Christian community. If unmarried heterosexuals are called to celibacy and are presumed in Christ to have the power to live out his commands, then so should I be. To treat me according to a different standard is to lower my dignity before God. I too am called to be holy. She finished by saying this. May I make two requests? Love me. But remember, you cannot be more merciful than God. It isn't mercy to affirm same-sex acts as good. Don't compromise truth. Help me to live in harmony with it. I'm asking you to help me to take up my cross and to follow Jesus. Homosexuality is no different in many respects from other sins. And same-sex attracted Christians are no different from other Christians. Let me finish by considering three of the objections I think we so often hear to this teaching from the Bible. Firstly, times have changed. Surely in the 21st century we can't really, can we, take the teaching of the Bible seriously? I mean, just look how much society has changed. Surely it's simply a matter of justice and equality. But just think back to last Sunday. What kind of book is the Bible? Is it simply a human book? containing human wisdom and observations about the way to live or is it as we saw uh, Jesus saying last week is it the unchanging word of God because God doesn't change therefore his word doesn't change therefore his template for marriage and what isn't marriage doesn't change either besides I think we so easily forget this the teaching here of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians would have gone against the tide of first century Roman culture just as much if not more so than it goes against our tide the tide of our culture in 21st century britain today homosexuality you may know was widely practiced in the roman world probably more so than it is in our culture when paul wrote this letter nero was the roman emperor he had married a male eunuch called sporus with a full wedding ceremony followed by a public procession where he took Sporus into his palace and lived with him as his wife. Just imagine how out of date Paul's teaching must have seemed with sexual sin paraded in the Roman world like that by the most powerful man of the day. Second objection And again, I think we often hear this. What about faithful, committed, gay relationships? Isn't that kind of faithful, committed relationship something to be celebrated? Surely that's okay. But just look back to the previous chapter and how chapter 5 starts in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Here is a man in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. Now notice, Willie. there seems to be no question here about whether or not the couple love each other. Paul doesn't ask about the level of their commitments or whether they have been in a faithful long-term relationship. Because, of course, that is beside the point. The fact is, the nature of the relationship is wrong. It is still sin. Third objection. Why on earth should we make such a big deal out of all this? Well, in part, of course, I mean, you know, so often hear, don't you, you know, why is the church making such a big deal out of this? But actually, it's our culture which is making such a big deal out of it, and the church is always called to be distinctive. We're always called, as followers of Jesus Christ, to be distinctive in whatever culture we live in, in whatever time and age. That is part of our calling, to be distinctive. But, of course, supremely on this issue, we make such a big deal out of it because of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Such will not inherit the kingdom of God just as those whose lives are characterized by drunkenness or greed will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who persist in unrepentant lifestyle will face the judgment. And remember, of course, it's the Lord Jesus himself who spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. It is a loving thing to do to warn people of the reality of judgment. That is a great kindness to do that. I don't know about you, but I think it's very easy to get the impression that the church is like some kind of stuffy gentleman's club in the West End, which needs to be brought into the 21st century. And that's so often, isn't it, the way in which the kind of media coverage works on this. You know, all along along the club members are sort of saying something like, well, you know, we don't want to have these people in our club. Uh, And yet the rules kind of gradually get changed over time. So firstly, you know, the dress code is relaxed to kind of bring the club into the 21st century. So you don't always have to wear a suit and tie. And then you're actually allowed to have a conversation with someone in the reading room. You know, so so that rather than just kind of sitting there behind the pages of your daily telegraph, you're actually allowed to have a conversation with someone. Um, And then women are allowed in, but only if accompanied by a member of the club. And then finally, uh, women are allowed in equally on their own terms. Have you heard that kind of thing? So easy. Uh, I think that's the way in which the, the media portrays this the whole time. And yet, actually, I hope we can see there is far more at stake simply than club etiquette. Verse 10. Such will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, the Bible allows for disagreement on certain issues, what the Apostle Paul calls disputable matters, and there are other issues on which Christians disagree, such as whether or not women should lead churches, for example, or whether or not women should be bishops. But they are not salvation issues. They do not imperil people's eternity. Which means that those who say, and I'm sure we've all heard people say, say something like, well, you know, the Church of England has learned to get along over the issue of women bishops, and therefore, you know, this is no different, you know, that everyone should just learn to get along together. They are missing the point that this is an issue where people's eternity is at stake. And it's because, as Those who know Jesus, it's because we've experienced the love of Jesus ourselves. It's because we love others that we are concerned for their eternity. And that is why we will need next Sunday's talk as well as today's talk. Because next Sunday, we're going to be thinking together about how, as a church, we need to be clear on our response. So do please come back for that. But in the meantime, let's pray together. And such were some of you. Heavenly Father, we praise you very much for the the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus, washed, sanctified, and justified. And we pray that you would help us to keep on rejoicing in what it is to know him. And yet, Heavenly Father, we pray too in our current climate, please would you help us as a church to be faithful to the gospel ourselves to be faithful to the bible's teaching and please would you help us to hold out this glorious good news uh, to our society to our world to those who are same-sex attracted and we pray father for those in our church family who are same-sex attracted please would you help them to keep on trusting in the lord jesus and to rejoice in him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.